You're supposed to sit on your ass and nod at stupid things. Man, that's hard to do. But if you don't, they'll screw you. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't like. And sometimes I say things I shouldn't like. singing a song called Bill Lee, which um, was about a baseball player, I believe, in the 70s. Bill Lee, I, I was too young and I didn't really pay attention to baseball, but apparently he was sort of a... You get these guys in sports sometimes, I think more in baseball than in, other, than in football, certainly. Um, you get these individuals, you get these sort of uh, quirky dudes who just happen to have a hell of a fastball, but... Other than that, they're not really team players. They're not really even that into the sport. They just happen to be really good at it. And I think Bill Lee was one of those guys. I looked him up at some point years ago. Anyway, check him out. Bill Lee, that's Warren Zevon. You probably know Warren Zevon from uh, Werewolves of London. I think that was probably his most famous song. Oh, Werewolves of London. I was at a party one time. I met a guy. And uh, we were sort of hitting it off, talking about music. And I said, you ever heard of Warren Zevon? And he looked at me and he said, little old lady got mutilated late last night, which happens to be a line from Werewolves in London. It's like, yeah, I like this guy. Anyway, welcome to uh, Aroma episode. It's been a while. Uh, been a while since I've been alone in uh, quiet space and... Uh, so it's just you and me, just you and me here tonight doing a little Roma, a little Roman. Uh, I'm going to play a couple of tunes as I tend to do in these things. You can always just jump ahead. They're all about three to four minutes long, I suppose. I'm not playing any any uh, sonatas or uh, symphonic music, so just a couple of pop songs. Let's get... Uh, well, before I get into it, actually, I, I realized I, I was thinking today, I just put up an episode and I talked a little bit about Burning Man, but I didn't talk much about the eclipse, um, which happened the week before. The first thing about the eclipse is I think the phrase path of totality is a pretty fucking cool collection of words. 
if I ever get around to writing a memoir or something, I might, I might work that into the title somehow on the path of totality or trying to uh, treading the path of totality or something along those lines. Anyway, so I was in a place near Timothy Lake, south, just south of Mount Hood, which was on the edge of the path of totality, which is also a good phrase, on the edge of the path of totality. Anyway, I was I was within the path, but uh, very close to the edge of it. Um, so the totality, as you get closer to the edge, the the moon is in directly in front of the sun a little less time. I think if you're right in the exact center of the path, it was like two minutes and ten seconds or something. And where I was was about a half that. It was a little over a minute, and. You know, like Burning Man, uh, I'm confronted with trying to describe something that's pretty inexplicable. If you haven't experienced an eclipse, one thing I would say to you is if you're near the path of totality, but you're not actually in it, this is one of those experiences where there's no there's no margin. There's no like, you know, 50% totality is not half the experience. You're in or you're out, really, because it's it's interesting. The partial experience is interesting as it's leading up to it. The light gets kind of this weird sort of coppery color. Um, there, there's a quality of light that's unlike anything I've ever experienced. It's it's not similar to the light before a storm or after a storm or when the you know the late afternoon light comes shining in under the clouds or there you know I've seen so many different kinds of light in my life but the light of an approaching eclipse is unique and and it's like you're looking at the world at the bottom from the bottom of um I don't know, a bottle of vinegar or something. It's it's this strange brown, yellow, brown kind of metallic quality to the light. Um, and I know that's not conjuring much of an image for you, but that's the whole point. You know, you can't explain something like this. Um, but I can explain my experience. So what happened when the moon went in front of the sun was that I felt a sense of overwhelming poignancy. Um, What do I mean by that? Something became visible that is ever-present, but is generally invisible, at least in its momentary effects. And what I'm talking about is the flow of time. Now we see the flow of time, especially as we get older, we see the effects of the flow of time. But it's like the flow of a of a river through the desert that's cutting a channel a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. You don't notice it. But you might take a measurement or you might go away for a few years and come back and say, oh, hmm, the, the canyon's a little deeper. Or, you know, you notice that the, you notice the accumulated effects. Uh, 
and I, and again, this is something that happens more as you get older. You see, you know, you see Prince die, or you see David Bowie die, and, and there you're reminded, oh, time is passing. That's right, time is passing. Especially if you're someone like me who doesn't have kids. I think I've said on this podcast before, not having kids is like living in a house with no clocks. You, these constant reminders of the passage of time, which are children, um, if they're not around, you know, maybe you have animals, you have pets, you have dogs that get old, you know, puppies that get old. and you, So you see it in them. But if you live the way I've been living the last few years, which is relatively disconnected from those sorts of timekeepers, you can forget, you know, and I hang out with a lot of people much younger than me. And, uh, yeah, and it, it's weird. Every once in a while I'll notice the way someone will defer to me or someone will like the way they look at me or describe me to someone else. And it's like, Oh yeah, I'm twice their age. Fuck. I forgot about that. It, because I think what happens is, you know, a friend of mine turned 28 recently and she said something about how for the first time in her life, she feels the age she is. And, uh, I guess when she was 22, she felt older than her biological age. Right. And now she's 28 and she's like, wow, finally I feel the right age. And it sucks because I know that in a couple of years, then I'll be out of it. You know, it's almost like an eclipse in her life is the way she's envisioning it. Like these two things, her biological age and her sort of spiritual or psychological age align there for this magical moment when she's 28. And I wrote to her and I was like, look, I think, I hope it makes you feel better. I've felt 28 for the last 27 years. Um, and I, I, I was being comforting and joking a little, but I think that's actually true. I think I sort of I don't know if it was 28, but it was somewhere between my mid-20s and my mid-30s. I looked in the mirror and I was like, yeah, I'm that guy. That's me. And when I was younger, I looked in the mirror and I was like, who's that fucking kid with the zits and the braces and the, you know, the dorky hair and the, you know, like, I know that's my body, but it's not me. I'm trapped in this weird kid's body, right? And then around somewhere around 30, I looked in the mirror. I was like, yeah, there I am. That's me. That's what I look like. That's what I feel like. That's what my face looks like. That's what my body's like. And then my body continued to age. My face continued to age. My hair turned gray. Uh, but I stayed that guy who was looking out you know, out the window, I was going to say, he was looking into the mirror. And so now it's, I'm on the other side. Now I look in the mirror and I'm like, who's that dude? Like, who's that? I saw a photo, a couple friends of mine posted on social media. And it's like, they're old. When the fuck did they get old? You know, it's weird. It's weird. And if you're not, you know, if you're 35 or younger, you don't know what I'm talking about yet, but it's an interesting thing. That's sort of how you try to catch up to your body when you're young. Then you catch up with it at a certain point, uh, and then you go past it. It's then you're out of alignment again. But as far as feeling goes, I think you know we sort of feel a certain age forever, and our bodies just get older. So the poignancy that I felt at the eclipse was this passage of time. This 
this sort of flow that's always flowing through us like blood flowing through our brain our, our veins it just it just never stops and so we become accustomed to it and we don't notice it like we don't notice the beating of our own hearts but sometimes there's a moment when you hear your heartbeat and this was like a visual representation of that there's a moment where you see time you see what a minute and five seconds looks like. You see it coming. You feel it arrive. It's there right in front of you. And then it goes. And what that did for me was it made, it felt like a flag was planted. Like I'll always remember this moment. I'll remember who I was with. I'll remember where I was. I'll remember that my parents were alive. I'll remember the state of the important relationships in my life. And it just made me so acutely aware of how everything's moving. You know, everything's moving. And this illusion of stability is just totally a figment of the imagination. And for a minute and five seconds, that was really clear to me. Uh, Yeah, it was very poignant. Uh, Some of the people I was with broke into tears. Other people were cheering. I was closer to the tears. Uh, I think if I had been alone or just with, you know, one or two people, I probably would have... um, felt freer. And if I had felt freer, I would have been moved in that way. I was moved in that way, but I was hiding it because I'm a fucking dude and that's what we do. Ha! <laughs> Suckers. Um, yeah. So it was very poignant. That's all I can say. So if you haven't experienced it, I'd recommend it. I don't know if it's worth flying around the world or whatever. People do all kinds of crazy stuff, but, um, if you're if you're anywhere near a total eclipse, I would highly recommend it. I think this is the third one I've seen. I think I saw one. I should probably look it up. I think I saw one when I was eight. I, I can remember my father's aunt uh, when I was maybe seven. I don't know. Um, I can remember the event. I don't remember really experiencing it. But And then uh, I saw one in Germany a few years ago. That was a pretty crazy situation. I had a layover in Munich, and a friend of mine drove in. He's a fashion model I knew in the model house in Barcelona. He was living in Baden-Baden. He drove up to the airport, picked me up, drove me down where his friends were. I went on a hillside or hilltop watching, handed me a beer, boom, watched the eclipse. Wow, crazy. Back in his Porsche, back to the airport, back on the plane, boom, fly to San Francisco craziest layover ever um anyway so roma let's talk about some of your emails here okay uh is there something this is from steven or stefan i never know how people pronounce that name is there something about the aftermath of writing sex at dawn that makes you wish you had written some part of it differently or that you had enlarged further upon some theme somehow is there an aspect you've rethought or that more recent scholarship has changed your views upon? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, the thing that comes to mind is that I wish we had 
included uh, an entire chapter on same-sex relationships and really looked into the significance of that more deeply. Uh, we didn't at the time. There's a lot of uh, reference to it, obviously, especially when we're talking about bonobos, uh, among whom same-sex same sex interactions are extremely common. Um, and so I certainly hope and, and I think that it's clear that we're arguing that same-sex interactions are totally natural and not the evolutionary enigma that the mainstream narrative would have you believe because the essence of the argument that we present in Sex at Dawn is that sexuality, human sexual behavior, isn't primarily about reproduction. It's primarily um, serving social needs and reproduction is sort of a byproduct of that, that our species has sex for non-reproductive purposes primarily. Uh, And as do dolphins and bonobos and to some extent chimpanzees, it could be argued. But I wish we'd been more explicit about that. I wish we'd sort of done a, a more sort of comprehensive discussion of it rather than just a mention here or there in the context of bonobos or, you know, this or that <clears throat> tribal uh, um, tradition or, or behavior. So, yeah, that's what comes to mind. As far as scholarship, I haven't seen um, recent scholarship that has led me to question our arguments in Sex at Dawn, at least not the overall basic argument of the nature of human sexuality. Although I'd like to think that I'm very open to that, so I don't know. If I am, we'll find out when and if something comes along, but... No, the the evidence that I've seen since the book uh, came out has been supportive uh, of the arguments that we make there. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's I, I know recently someone wrote to me and said that um, there's a book out by David Barish, I think his name is, who's an evolutionary biologist, uh, that just totally trashes Sexaton. And uh, he sent me an excerpt from it, and it looks like it. he just used the language from a critique that he had published in the, uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education online. Uh, but it's interesting because, you know, I see online, it, it's funny, you have to, as an author, you, you have to pick your battles and... Um, you know, I see people dismissing Sex at Dawn online, like, oh, that don't you know that book's been debunked? And, you know, that's not science, that's bullshit. And, um, and I don't engage with those people, because I, if I did, that's all I would do. Uh, and I wouldn't change their minds anyway. <clears throat> that's one of the things I learned when that book came out, and I was engaging with people, and I thought I could actually, I thought that we were having a, conversation where people were open to new information and it turned out that that wasn't the case. People come into it almost without exception, having their conclusion and just sort of backfilling. So I uh, eventually just stopped engaging. But it's interesting because even the Wikipedia page, I don't know if it's my page or the Sex and Dawn page, but there's this, you know, like, well, the academic community was dismissive and are highly critical. And 
actually the academic, I mean, the book won the book of the year award from the, what is it, the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, which is the largest scientific organization in the country that of sex researchers. Um, it, it did very well among the academics who looked at it. Some academics looked at it and trashed it, but of course, evolutionary psychologists are going to trash it because the whole book is sort of saying evolutionary psychology is a discipline that you know purports to be science but is actually more political propaganda masquerading as science. So, uh, you know, there's no doubt that there but the thing is like if you look at this uh this review by Barish in the Chronicle of Higher Education, it's it's like the worst possible review you can imagine. He accuses us of not understanding the most basic things about evolution, of misrepresenting the science, of having written the book merely to uh, support our lifestyle, which I guess he means like we're, Kisilda and I are swingers or we're into orgies. I don't know exactly what he's implying, but clearly, you know, that was his implication. Anyway, he accuses us of all this horrible stuff, but there's not a single example. He doesn't provide a single example. So when I see things like that, it's just, that's just anger. That's just an emotional response. Um, so I don't engage with those. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think I answered the question. That's the main thing. I would look more at same-sex relationships. Uh, Jonathan uh, has a friend who he has this ongoing discussion with him. Uh, they both agree that society needs fundamental restructuring, but they're having this sort of age-old argument about, well, is it better to opt out and try to lead by example of an alternative way of living? Or his friend says, no, it's better to play the game and make as much money as you can and then affect change uh, after you've got all that money. So, you know, there's no right answer to that question. This is a discussion that's been going on forever. Uh, Personally, Obviously, I have opted out to a large extent, and yet I've got a foot in as well. You know, here I am, I'm talking to you, and that requires some sort of engagement. Uh, you know, I sometimes I'll get an email from someone who's like, yeah, how come you don't, like, how come you're not off living in the woods somewhere? You know, like if you're spouting all this anti, you know, it's like a love it or leave it kind of approach to civilization, and of course, I think that's the result of very, very shallow thinking. But uh, I've opted out to a large extent. I'm trying to, I'm not really trying to be an example to anyone, but I'm trying to be as public as possible about my own experience so that hopefully other people can take something from that and learn from it. I mean, that's you know, Vanthropology 2017, I, I tried to hashtag everything so people could see, like, what's it really like to live in a van down by the river? It's pretty fucking great, it turns out. Um, you know, and I'm open about, like, money and how much things cost and how I finance this or that, you know, how I paid for travel and 
how different jobs I've had over the years and things like that. And I'm also open about the fact that I have no retirement account. I have no security. If you guys decide you don't like this podcast and stop supporting it, then I'm going to be screwed. I guess I'll have to write more books, <laughs> which is not a great way to make a living. And then if a book don't sell, I don't know what I'll do. I haven't had a job since the early 90s. And my God, look at my fucking resume. Like, I am, he's an AVN award winner. <laughs> you know, I don't know what kind of job I would get. So anyway, I try to be open and honest about it, but it's not, I'm not holding myself up as any kind of an example. I'm just, if, you know, if you can learn something from it, if you're interested, it's here. Uh, I don't really know. I The one thing that I the one sort of insight into that that I would offer is that I think there was some quote Abraham Lincoln said, happiness is like jam. You can't spread a, even a little without getting some on yourself. That's kind of a silly cliche, but I think the point is if you are, you know, you play with fire, you get burned, you play with, you know, it, it, you, the substance of the stuff that you're working in, it, you, the the world that you enter, it, it enters you. And so I think it's kind of an illusion for someone who's young in their 20s to say, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and work in corporate America for the next 30 years and I'm going to make a shit ton of money. And then when I'm in my 50s or 60s, I'm going to take that money and then I'm going to you know, make these major changes in the world and I'm going to save people and I'm going to set up all this cool stuff. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen sometimes. Sometimes people get rich and then they use the money to do really good stuff. That does happen. But it's much more likely that 30 years in that world is going to change you. You're going to change anyway uh, because of this flow of time that we were talking about before. You're going to change anyway, and those changes are going to be shaped by the world that you're in. And if you're in a world that is essentially alien to the values that you hold right now, then those values are going to get worn away. And you're going to be someone else in 30 years, and you might be someone who's unrecognizable to yourself, to who you are right now. And I don't care how much money you have if you have drifted too far from your defining values, you're not going to change shit. You're not going to change anything because you will have been co-opted and you will have been absorbed into the world that you thought you were going to go overthrow. That's my insight into that. And on that note, I'm going to play a song. Uh, I try to avoid mainstream songs um, because, you know, the artist doesn't need me to help them out. I like to bring attention to artists that people don't know too well. Um, this one's pretty mainstream. When I was a kid, this was a hit. I listened to this in my Walkman when I was hitchhiking across the country the first time on my way to Alaska. I remember this song was... Uh, pretty high on my cassette playlist. And it's a song that spoke to me when I was a young man. 
and it still speaks to me. I don't listen to it anymore. Um, I don't for various reasons. I, maybe it's just played out in my head. Um, but the message of the song is very important. The, the lyrics are beautiful and it was a huge hit in the 70s. So it's probably obscure for a lot of you listening to this. If you're my age, you've heard this song a hundred times. But if you're in your 20s or 30s, you might not have heard it at all. I played it for a friend the other day who was a musician. He'd never heard it. It's called The Pretender. And it's by Jackson Brown. And it's about someone who uh, decides to abandon his values and play the game. Someone who decides to be a happy idiot and struggle for the legal tender. I'm gonna rid myself of health in the shade of the free. Gonna pack my lunch in the morning And go to work each day And when the evening rolls around I'll go on home and lay my body down And when the morning light comes streaming in I'll get up and do it again Amen, say it again I wanna know what became of the changes we waited for love to bring. Were they only the fitful dreams of some greater awakening? I've been aware of the time going by. They say in the end, it's the wink of an eye. Come streaming in, you'll get up and do it again. Amen. Caught between the longing for love and the struggle for the legal tender. Where the sirens sing and the church bells ring and the jumpman pounds his fender. Sleep at the traffic light And the children solemnly wait for the ice cream vendor Out into the cool of the evening Strolls the pretender He knows that all his hopes and dreams Begin and end there
for the legal tender yeah what's the what's the next line and uh stake my claim where the ads take aim at the heart and the soul of the spender and believe in whatever may lie in those things that money can buy yeah that's it right Are you there? Say a prayer for the pretender who started out so young and strong, only to surrender. It's all set up to get you to surrender, and the key is to keep you scared. Scared. Those of you who haven't traveled outside of the United States, you don't, you know, it's impossible for you probably to see clearly how fearful America is, how much fear is built into American culture. You have to get out to really look back and see it. It's And it's not your fault. It's as impossible as a fish seeing the water that it's swimming in. It's You just can't. You have to jump into another river and look back and do some comparison. But 
Yeah, America is all about fear. It's about fearing each other. It's about fearing your body. It's about fearing sex. It's about women fearing men and men fearing women and men fearing each other and women fearing each other and children fearing adults and adults fearing the cops and the cops fearing the criminals and all of us fearing ISIS and hurricanes and fires and getting old and ultimately the greatest fear we're all afraid of dying oh my god i'm afraid of dying so i'm gonna just trade all my freedoms all my autonomy all my dignity all my everything for these empty promises these little hints that i'm gonna somehow be the one who doesn't die i'm gonna be the one who doesn't get old i'm gonna be the one who walks out of the casino with all the money. Sure you are, sucker. Uh, I'm reading a book my friend Aaron picked up for me in Portland called uh, Travels with Charlie in Search of America by John Steinbeck. Uh, John Steinbeck is famous for having written The Grapes of Wrath. And this is a book about uh, when he was in his, I think, early 60s. He got a truck and drove around the country for a few months. And I was struck by a particular part of the book. I mean, I'm only halfway through it, um, but I'm loving it. Uh, it's Charlie's a dog. Anyway, he's talking about, this is early in the book, and he's talking about why he decided to take this trip. And he, he he's very low-key about it, Um. But he says, uh, you know, there were lots of reasons uh, he was giving up. As the day approached, my warm bed and comfortable house grew increasingly desirable and my dear wife incalculably precious to give these up for three months for the terrors of the uncomfortable and unknown seemed crazy. I didn't want to go. Something had to happen to stop me from going, but it didn't. I could get sick, of course, but that was one of the one of my main but secret reasons for going at all. During the previous winter, I had become rather seriously ill with one of those carefully named difficulties, which are the whispers of approaching age. When I came out of it, I received the usual lecture about slowing up, losing weight, limiting the cholesterol intake. It happens to many men, and I think doctors have memorized the litany. It had happened to many of my friends. The lecture ends, slow down, you're not as young as you once were. I So he took this trip as a way to, I think, basically acknowledge that he was getting old and death was approaching and there might not be another chance. He died six years after writing this book um, from congestive heart failure. And apparently he was a lifelong cigarette smoker. So I suspect that what happened was he probably had a heart attack uh, or at least cardiologists were involved and they saw that he had heart disease. Um, And so he goes on to talk about his response to this. He says, I've seen so many begin to pack their lives in cotton wool smother their impulses, hood their passions, and gradually retire from their manhood into a kind of spiritual and physical semi-invalidism. In this they are encouraged by wives and relatives, and it's such a sweet trap. 
Who doesn't like to be a center for concern? A kind of second childhood falls on so many men. They trade their violence for the promise of a small increase of lifespan. He uses the word violence there. I would use a different word because, of course, violence conjures harm and and destruction. And I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is passion. I think he means vigor. Um, uh, Anyway, he says, in effect, the head of the house becomes the youngest child. And I have searched myself for this possibility with a kind of horror, for I have always lived violently, drunk hugely, eaten too much or not at all, slept around the clock or missed two nights of sleeping, worked too hard and too long in glory, or slobbed for a time in utter laziness. I've lifted, pulled, chopped, climbed, made love with joy, and taken my hangovers as a consequence, not as a punishment. I love that line. I really love that. And see, that's what he means by violent, you know, like drinking, eating, sleeping, working, you know, like everything to an extreme. Obviously, he doesn't mean beating people up. But I just love that line of uh, taking my hangovers as a consequence, not as a punishment. In other words, there's no moral judgment. It's just that's the way I choose to live. And if you're going to Go out and drink, you're going to get a fucking hangover. I did not want to surrender fierceness for a small gain in yardage. My wife married a man. I saw no reason why she should inherit a baby. If this projected journey should prove too much, then it was time to go anyway. I see too many men delay their exits with a sickly, Slow reluctance to leave the stage. Yeah, I can relate to that. I think that's what I'm getting at here. If you, the key to becoming the pretender, the way they get you is that they first accentuate your fear and then they, they hint at a way out. They make sure you know you're caught in this trap, that you're a mortal animal who's going to die keep reminding you of it in very subtle ways. And then they leverage that fear to sell you things. Uh, You know, when you're young, there are things like beer and trucks and uh, things that are going to, you know, bring lots of women and sexiness and happiness into your life or men if that's what you're into whatever they're going to bring sex and and passion and love and you know all these youthful wonderful things into your life and then as you get older it's like oh yeah you know you can get back to that just take these pills you know viagra and seralis or cialis or whatever the fuck it's called um you know work out and you know do this crossfit and do, do you lift these weights and buy this exercise kit and take these supplements and blah 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 it's all the same shit it's all will save you from the sharks but of course no one saves you from the sharks and uh so i really i i admire him confronting that head on and just like hey it's time for me to go i'll fucking go and i'm not going to linger around on the stage I, uh, yeah, someday I'll, maybe I'll tell you the story of my grandfather, but it's not time for that yet. But he definitely lingered on the stage and it was a very early experience for me seeing somebody who was, 
Didn't really want to live, but was too scared to die and just stuck there on the margin for way too long. Okay, let's go to uh, an email here. This is from Natalie. Uh, the subject is pussy. Uh, Chris, there's a moment in episode 172 where you and Kelly Carlin are discussing euphemisms for sex and you explain what a jelly roll is. Kelly uh, doesn't know and then you say it's a pussy. Did you notice how it took her back? She took a moment because the word threw her off. The word pussy seems to roll off your tongue as if there's no other word in your vocabulary for vagina. That pussy is and has always been the word for vagina. The same goes for the word fucking, for having sex. I'm no prude, but I have to tell you as a woman listener that most women don't think of their vaginas as a pussy. It's a diminutive word, a slang that only dudes use, dudes in quote, a demeaning term reserved only for the exploitation of the body part. So each and every time you use the word pussy, when not in the context of a joke, I'm naturally taken aback. You have such an articulate vocabulary, and then you say pussy, and automatically I think of a high school boy that isn't brave enough to use some anatomically contextual word for vagina. I listen to your podcast to get a better understanding of the human condition so I can better understand the motivations of the people I interact with. And to totally beat a dead horse, the microsecond that I hear the word pussy, all credibility flies out the window until you or the person with whom you're speaking says something validating the intellectual discourse. I just wanted to say something because maybe a little change on the use of euphemism could keep more mainstream female listeners engaged. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, I see in this, first of all, To me, the word vagina is a word that's used in doctor's offices under fluorescent lighting. So if I'm having a casual conversation with someone about body parts, I'm not going to talk about my penis and I'm not going to talk about her vagina or her vulva. Uh, Even when I'm talking science, I would normally say the, you know, the woman's reproductive tract or something like that. The word vagina, just, I don't like the word. Um, cause it sounds very clinical and in a clinical setting, that's fine, but I'm generally not, certainly not on the podcast having clinical discussions. Now, see what I, th- I find it very, there's so many assumptions in this email and, and I had a bit of an exchange with Natalie, and Natalie seems to be a very nice person. So uh, I, I don't mean to be criticizing her directly. Um, but I do think that this is an example of how someone who feels justified just goes crazy with uh, unexamined assumptions and projections And um, doesn't really look back at themselves very much here. And maybe I'm doing the same thing, okay? But let's, let's talk about her for a minute. So first of all, she claims to know what Kelly is thinking. This is Kelly Carlin, okay? Um, 
if I've ever met a woman who's totally capable of telling, of standing up for herself, telling me if I've offended her in some way, it's Kelly Carlin. Uh, let's remember Kelly Carlin's father is George Carlin, who made a big part of his career out of talking about words, particularly the words you can't say on television. What His most famous bit in his entire career was the seven words you can't say on television, which were shit, piss, fuck, cock, cunt, motherfucker, motherfucker, fucker, and tits, I think. Yeah, I think those are the... Or those are eight. So anyway, those were the words. Shit, piss, fuck, cotton, cock, cocks, motherfucking tits. Anyway, Kelly Carlin is not going to be offended by my use of the word pussy. So your Natalie is projecting that, and it's kind of insulting to Kelly, I would say. Um, the next thing we say is, she says is, pussy is and has always been... Oh, I'm assuming that pussy is and has always been the word for vagina. Now, see, the thing is, pussy is not the word for vagina. Pussy and vagina and cunt and conejo and coño and lots of other words and lots of languages are verbal symbols for the body part. Pussy's not the word for vagina. Right? Pussy is a word for that part of the body. Vagina is another word for that part of the body. She's just assuming that vagina is somehow closer to the reality of the thing, but neither of them are the reality of the thing. They're both just fucking words. Uh, I have to tell you, as a woman listener, most women don't think of their vaginas as a pussy. How the hell do you know what most women think or don't think? Because you're a woman, suddenly you know what most women think and you're a, the official spokesman of women. I've asked a lot of women uh, what, when generally lovers, people I'm having sex with, do you, th what word works for you? Right? And most of them say pussy. Right? You have a lovely, what? What do you want? You have a lovely vagina? No, nobody wants to hear that in bed. I don't think. Nobody I've been with. <laughs> Um, cunt is a, cunt's a hard word. Cunt to me sounds insulting and, and, you know, she says pussy's diminutive, but uh, I don't think pussy's diminutive. I think cunt is, uh, cunt I would have trouble with. When I hear someone say, oh, he's a fucking cunt. Hey, shut up, cunt. Like a lot of British talk that way. I find that insulting and, and kind of aggravating. Um, but pussy, come on, pussy. It's certainly if pussy is a reference to the cat, um, cats are anything but weak. I mean, a cat will kick your ass. Cats are cute. They're furry. They're, they're just, I love cats. I'm a cat guy. Uh, and I respect cats. I respect pussies. You don't, you don't mess with them. I mean, they're like a cat, you know, if you're on good terms with them, they're fucking great. But, man, make a wrong move and you can be in some serious trouble. So I don't agree with, I don't hold these meanings that she's projecting, right? Um, and that's, that's the lesson here, that words mean different things to different people. And to just assume that you know, you know, that there's like some high school bullshit going on here. I don't, I don't see that at all. Um, 
So each every time you use the word pussy when not in the context of a joke, I'm naturally taken aback. Again, naturally? What do you mean naturally? There's nothing natural about that. You're having your individual response to a, a, a sound that I'm making with my face. Other people will have different responses. And, you know, every time that there's a communication happening, it's like, you know, there's the way it, it's like the radio signal goes out from the transmitter. That's a certain activity happening there. Like, what am I thinking? What am I feeling when I say that word? Then it goes out into the air and then you receive it and then you apply meanings to it. And sometimes the meanings you apply are not the meanings that I was applying when I said it. So this is a a multi-step process here. And to think that you're just, oh, your response is natural? Nah, there's nothing natural about that. Um, You know, and again, you know, you you say pussy, I automatically think of a high school boy that isn't, you don't automatically, that's what you're choosing to do. That's what your context is. That's the meaning you're applying to this word. Um, You know, all credibility flies out the window when you, eh, come on, you're choosing that. If you've been listening to this podcast, you've read my books, you, you know who I am, you... And you hear me say the word pussy and suddenly all credibility flies out the window? Come on, give me a fucking break. That's not the way things happen. Certainly not the way they should happen. So anyway, uh, yeah, I like pussy. I like the word. I like the the thing. I like the the animal. I like the body part. And I'm going to keep saying pussy. So there. Uh, if all credibility automatically flies out the window every time I do it, that is a problem that I think you're going to have to deal with because uh, I don't know of a better word for that body part. Okay, let's see. We've got... Uh, like to get your opinion on the subject of saving a marriage after infidelity. I've been married 22 years to a wonderful woman. It's been a good marriage. I love my wife. I still do. I'm f- I'm in my late 40s. She's in her mid 40s. We have kids. Recently, I admitted to my wife that I had been visiting massage parlors with happy endings for the past 10 years. Two of those visits were more than a hand job and resulted in intercourse with protection. I have also smoked pot on and off throughout our marriage. However, I hid this activity for my wife as well. Approximately 10 days ago, she was out of town. Uh, I ate some edible marijuana. Long story short, I ate too much and ended up in a bit of a mess. Uh, Yeah, so everything fell apart. Uh, She found out. He admitted to all this stuff. She says she loves me and will work on forgiving me, but gives no hope for reconciling our marriage. She also told me that she has known for 10 years that I've been cheating on her. She even claims that she had someone follow me and took pictures of me having lunch with another woman. I've never engaged in any type of relationship, and if I was having lunch with a woman, it must have been business-related. I've taken full responsibility for my actions and have apologized with utmost sincerity. I fully acknowledge the pain I've caused her, and it breaks my heart to know that I've hurt her so much. But we've been together 22 years. I love her and I believe that our marriage is worth saving. What makes it difficult 
is that over the past few months, for the first time, we've gone to a marriage counselor. Uh, our relationship was as good as it, I guess this is, they were going to the marriage counselor before the shit hit the fan with uh, the hand jobs and the weed. We were having a great time. Our relationship was wonderful. I was so happy and looking forward to our future together. Now she's made it very clear she'll never be able to trust me again. She has also stated that she takes no responsibility for what may have been missing in our marriage that led me astray. She says she did everything she could, and this is all 100% on me. While I admit I could have done something more positive with the emptiness I was feeling, I don't understand her thinking on this. The sad thing is the massage parlors never did anything for me in terms of satisfying the intimacy I was missing. I always left feeling worse about myself and realized that what I really wanted was to improve my marriage with her. Um, I've been reading a lot of articles and listening to experts. They all point out that most marriages can be saved if both parties are willing to work on it. Uh, but I don't know what to do. If my wife refuses, I would value any insight. Well, man, uh, I don't know what it is that qualifies me to, to offer you any insight, but, uh, with that proviso, I think there are two things here. One is you, I, I understand where the guy's coming from. The hand jobs weren't solving the problem. The problem was the lack of intimacy that he was feeling, the emptiness, the loneliness. Hand jobs are definitely uh, going to be a symptomatic approach to that. They're not going to you know, solve the problem from some nameless person in a massage parlor. So uh, I think it's legit to say that that, from his perspective, um, wasn't addressing the problem, really. It was just sort of making it tolerable. And I do think that the wife is being uh, unreasonable in saying, no, this is 100% on you, and um, sorry, I have nothing to do with this. You're just an asshole. Fuck you. All relationships are guided by both people. It's like the Ouija board, you know? It's somebody's pushing for that thing to move across the board. Um we drive these things together and uh, things can happen. Certainly things can happen uh, out of the control of one of the people, but a 22 year marriage, you go through a lot of stuff together and, you know, I can understand why she's angry and I can understand to a certain extent that she's maybe taking advantage of this situation to, uh, extract some pound of flesh from this guy. But I don't think that it's um, a, a legitimate position to say that, she, you know, I had nothing to do with this. Uh, I also don't think it's a legitimate, he said, uh, da, 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 da. she t stated she takes no responsibility for what may have been missing in our marriage that led me astray. That phrase Sounds a lot to me like a guy who's trying not to take responsibility. Led me astray. It wasn't something that led you astray. It's legit to say there was something missing in the marriage and 
you know, I went out looking for it in misguided ways that I now regret, but nothing led you astray. You led yourself astray. Um, and the fact that he hasn't had any affairs, any actual emotional relationship affairs in 22 years is pretty remarkable. That sounds like she doesn't believe this at this point, but um, it's pretty remarkable. And they've got kids together, and that, that's, a, that's a big thing. So I think that what Esther Perel says and and a lot of other people are saying these days is true that that you know and dan savage puts it really well he says if you're an alcoholic and you uh you know are sober for 22 years and you have you know three drinks in 22 years that's not a failure that's a fucking amazing success you fell off the wagon a couple of times in 22 years um, now I don't know where hand jobs fit into this. Some women would say, I don't give a shit, go get a hand job. Other women would say that's, you know, betrayal of our marriage. It's, it's a funny thing there. There was a, there was a English football, a soccer coach, a professional league. Um, I forget, maybe it's Tottenham. I forget if any of you UK listeners will probably remember this story. He was Israeli, but he was coaching this British team. And the the British media caught him coming out of a massage parlor. And it was a massage parlor that gave hand jobs. And they caught him like walking to his car in the parking lot. Like they pounced on him with cameras and, oh my God, what do you have to say for yourself? And he, he was just like, yeah, I don't know. Fuck you. Get out of my face. And he got in his car and he drove away. So then they, their correspondents in Israel <clears throat> contacted his wife. I think she was like a news reporter or a journalist of some sort and they're like your husband was just seen coming out of a massage parlor a notorious massage parlor in liverpool and you know the the prostitutes work there and all this and she just said like oh come on he has a really stressful job i'd i'd pay for the prostitutes to give him a massage if i could if he needed the money like she just totally was like who gives a shit man and the story just died so my point is some people would consider this a betrayal. Other people would consider it no big deal. Sounds like this guy's wife considers it a betrayal. And, uh, you know, if she doesn't, if she isn't willing to, to say, I understand that you must have been suffering in some significant ways in order, you know, to try to address it with that. Uh, and she's not willing to acknowledge that you're a good guy and that, uh, and that she wants it to continue, then there's not really much you can do. Uh, you really need the counseling now. And if she's not willing to do it now, there's nothing you can do, man. I don't think. I'm very strongly of the opinion that you can't make someone love you. You can't make someone want to be with you. The best thing you can do is maintain your dignity and, you know, say what you believe is true and be honest with her, be honest with yourself. 
make sure everybody knows that you're more than willing to go to counseling, to talk to people, to be honest, to open your heart. Once you've done that, that's all you can do. It's up to her. And if she can't deal with it, um, then, then she can't. Uh, and maybe she doesn't want to, maybe, I don't know, maybe she's like, Hey, you know, I'm done with this anyway. And this gives me an excuse to get out of it guilt-free. Maybe she's been having an affair, you know, and, and all this anger and accusation is her way of covering it up. Or maybe she's been wanting to, but she hasn't. And, um, this is her way of not having to deal with issues that are going on within her. Who knows? But you can't force it. So I would say your best bet is to stick to, you know, to, to find your integrity and your dignity and preserve that before anything else. Don't fucking beg. But also acknowledge that you fucked up, dude. You know, you've been lying to this woman for a long time about who you are. You've been getting high. You've been getting hand jobs, you know. Who knows? Maybe she's so pissed off because if 15 years ago you had come to her and said, hey, baby, let's get high and, you know, give me a hand job. Maybe she would have loved it. You know, maybe you would have had a different life. Maybe that's what she's angry about. Who knows? And, uh, you know, I haven't seen a, I haven't seen her side of the story, so I don't pretend to know what she's thinking. But there are a lot of reasons she could be pissed off at you. And, and generally the lack of intimacy is is the real offense. I think I I say this to young guys a lot. Like in my experience, women value authenticity and sincerity from men more than anything else. And so even if what you're saying is something that embarrasses you or feels shameful to you or makes you feel very vulnerable, the fact that you're willing to be vulnerable with her is quite possibly more valuable to her than whatever secret it is you're sharing is destructive. Like I know I'm thinking of a friend, for example, just a couple of weeks ago told me how, you know, he liked dressing up in his sister's underwear or something when he was a kid. And, you know, he was sort of embarrassed about it and it was this shameful secret and whatever. And he's telling me the story and his girlfriend's sitting there and she's just laughing. She's just like, yeah. And then I, t- you know, I told her and and she's like, all right, just don't stretch my shit out. You know, like, you know, wear the larger stuff, don't wear the smaller stuff. And it's like absolutely a non-issue. And so here's this thing could have been a whole secret life could have been you know, a big problem. And then 20 years from now, you know, she finds him, you know, falling asleep in her underwear. And oh my God, I don't even know you. And ah, it's a crisis. Instead, he just told her and she laughed and like, yeah, all right, go ahead, wear my shit. I don't care. You have a nice ass. So it, it's just a nice thing in their relationship now. So you never know. But I think always honesty is where it's at, man. Because otherwise, you can't have intimacy if the person you're supposed to be intimate with doesn't know you, you know, that's weird. And, and, and so many relationships are like that. There are two people who don't even fucking know each other. So people, you know, it's so common guys end up like <clears throat> feeling they fall in love with prostitutes because they're being honest with the prostitute because the prostitute actually knows you and accepts you now costs a couple hundred bucks an hour, but still, 
There's a sense of, of acceptance for who you are that you're not getting with your wife, but you can't blame your wife. You've never told her who you are. You never gave her the chance to accept you. So, yeah, I don't know. Good luck. Here's a tune <clears throat> talking about people knowing each other and getting this stuff out on the table early in the relationship. This is a tune called Wish I Knew You, and it's by The Revivalists. Goddamn 
frivolous wish i knew you those dudes can really keep a groove running huh i like that song a lot uh you should check them out if if you want to see them in action on youtube google band in the van and then the revivalists they're like seven of them i think and they do that tune and uh, get up another tune I've played on the podcast in a van, and uh, it's great. This I don't know what it is. It's some company's got a van set up like a studio, and they get bands in there. It's really cool to see them all packed in together. Uh, okay, here's an email. Hey, when you do another Q and A, can you talk about where one might go to hang out with tribal cultures in South America in the spirit of the continuum concept? Is from Justin. Justin, uh, here's the thing. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I've never really hung out with tribal people very much. I've been around some tribal people. I've been in, uh, Chiapas. I was near the Lacandon and I saw some of them in a village where I was. They'd come into the village, very small village down near Palenque. And, uh, I've also, Spent some time with the Tarahumara in northern Mexico in the Barranca del Cobre, the Copper Canyon area. Um, but honestly, I have not sought out these people um, in terms of me spending time with them because, uh, you know, the thing is, you as a traveler, you go to a place. Uh, you know, this is how I met Justin, uh, Justin, whose last name I can't even remember, right? Alexander, Justin Alexander, who disappeared in India a year or so ago. Uh, he's been on my mind recently because he was at Burning Man two years ago. And it's just strange to be there and think this young, vital, strong guy was there two years ago. And now he's just disappeared from the planet. Anyway, uh, if you don't know who I'm talking about, check the archives. There, there are four or five episodes with Justin. When he first got in touch with me, he he sort of pissed me off a little bit because he was living with these hunter-gatherer groups in the Philippines and, and in, I think, Indonesia or I don't know where. But he, he goes, he used to go way back, right? Way, way back in the woods. And he'd live with these people and... And I remember my first exchange with him was I was like, dude, I, you know, are you vaccinated? Are you sure you're not taking any disease back there to them? It's kind of irresponsible to just, you know, wander back into the jungle for five days and, and walk into a village and be like, hey, here I am, you know, let's let's hang. Um, he assured me that he was taking medical precautions, but still, I never went to live with any hunter-gatherer groups or any like really remote people because it just felt exploitative to me. And it wasn't necessary for any of the work I was doing, any of the research I was doing. There are anthropologists who are trained, who speak the language, who uh, go through very uh, careful processes to make sure they're not transmitting any diseases or, you know, bringing um, toxic substances back you know, that are going to mess up the environment. They think these things through. And uh, there's a big difference between traveling and being a professional anthropologist. So out of respect for anthropologists and respect for the people themselves, I just never felt like I needed to do that because 
you know, what's it going to do for me? Bragging rights. I don't speak the language. What am I going to do? I'm going to go sit in the village and be like, mm, here I am. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck anyone's talking about or what's going on. And um, so I just didn't see the, it just didn't make sense for me. The cost benefit analysis did not come out in a way that made me uh, decide to do that. So I have no advice on that. My advice is don't bother them. Uh, truly tribal people just want to be fucking left alone. And it's hard enough with the fucking loggers and the oil people and, you know, all the rest of it. And now we're going to have, you know, well-intentioned young people wandering back there, getting hurt. You know, they're going to have to take care of you. No, I'd, I'd say leave them alone, man. You know, there, there are people you can help uh, all over Venezuela, although I wouldn't recommend going to Venezuela right now given the political situation. But yeah, there are Peru, uh, Brazil, there are lots of places where you can go and work with native people who actually want your help. Um, I would go there. I would not go uninvited to some tribal situation. Um, okay, here's a here's an unusual email. Uh, this is from someone who just calls herself L. She says she's listened to a lot of podcasts. I try to remain open-minded in my old age. I am the epitome of most likely everything that would disgust you. A person you would discount. I am white, middle-aged American woman. I am a prude. I am a person trapped in the American mill. I never go out of my comfort zone. I self-medicate myself from pain and boredom. I work out disgustingly on exercise equipment. I have four kids and I've had sex with only one man. I live in suburbia and just traded in my old Volvo station wagon. I am an extraordinary coward. I'm not well-traveled. I only speak English and I become frustrated with those that don't. I'm disgustingly bored and lost because the favorite people in my life are the kids I brought into this worldly mess and they're leaving. I tried hallucinogens in my youth and hated them. I'm everything you would find not cool. I'm horribly bored, yet somehow I'm not boring. I might scare you or even challenge you. I'm not smart, but I'm far from dumb. I don't think I match my appearance. I can be very funny at times, but usually always very real. I'm appalled by this new America, and Trump makes me want to become a trained archer. You might like me, probably not, but maybe you should consider an interview with someone like me, because us nothings are out here with a wisdom of our own. Not sexy, not edgy, not adventurers, not sexual omnivores. We're just here. My husband of 30 years is a fine male specimen, a great and loyal man and father. I love him so very much. Does that make me or us weird? We are the view from the other side, wrinkled, white, and ugly, the married, the untraveled, the unchallenged and safe, the boring, without grand accomplishments or bragging rights. Yet we have a story and are part of the human spectrum, every bit as real and human as you. When I listen to you, I often feel lacking in real life. But maybe my life experience would expose some of the voids you might feel. Who knows? Maybe we can help each other live better and fuller. I thank you for putting yourself out there. It takes guts. Well, thank you for putting yourself out there. First of all, 
I would not find you disgusting. A lot of my friends are white, middle-aged American people. Some of my best friends are white, middle-aged Americans, believe it or not. Uh, and I don't think you're a prude. To me, a prude and an open-minded person, you, you can't be an open-minded prude. You know, you can, because a prude is someone who doesn't even want to think about it, doesn't even want to consider it. A prude is someone who's just like freaked out by nudity and free, just freaked out by shit sort of uh, as a reaction. They're not, you, it sounds to me like you've chosen your life. You've chosen to have these kids. You've chosen to be with this man. You've chosen your Volvo station wagon. I don't think you're a coward. Uh, I think you've just chosen a certain type of life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And the only thing that I find a little disturbing in this email is the self-hatred or the self-deprecation that part of which you're projecting onto me, assuming I would feel these things about you, but a lot of it you're just, you're describing yourself as um disgusting and boring and not not interesting but at the same time you're sort of being defensive and saying you know I'm not so bad well I would agree with you you're not so bad you're hey you listen to this podcast you must be cool um and you're not a prude there are no prudes who listen to this podcast I I guarantee you a prude would listen to this podcast once and hear me talking about pussies and dicks and balls and blowjobs and shitting and puking and I don't know, whatever the fuck else I talk about, and they'd be gone, you know? The fact that you're still listening to it proves, I think, quite conclusively that you're not a prude. Um, now, it does sound like you're not totally happy either. Uh, you're disgustingly bored and lost because your kids are leaving. Um you're again, I'm horribly bored. Uh, you say, where was it? You never go out of your comfort zone. Having four kids has taken you out of your comfort zone a million times, lady. Come on now. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a parent, but I know that you don't raise kids without getting stretched and pulled in a million different directions. Uh, so I think you're not giving yourself enough credit, honestly. And it sounds to me like you're scared which I understand because the life that you've been living for the last 20 or 30 years is coming to an end, but you're not coming to an end and there's a new life beginning. And it sounds like you love your husband. Sounds like he loves you. Sounds like you admire him, uh, which is fantastic after 30 years that he's, you say he's a great and loyal man and father. That's beautiful. So I disagree. I don't find you disgusting. I find you pretty cool. I think you're scared and I think you're confused because you're feeling on one hand some inferiority and some insecurity because you're looking at big changes coming down the road here. But I think you're going to be fine because you're sassy. And uh, sassiness is 
uh, and in, it's a heartbeat. It shows you're alive. It shows you're thinking. It shows you're feeling. And uh, I think you and your husband are going to have a great time. I hope you will take advantage of the fact that those four kids that you've raised are leaving the nest and going out on their own and that you guys are going to have some time together to to do whatever you want. And you don't have to fucking go to Thailand. I mean, you know, just listen to what I just said to the other guy. Like, I'm not a big advocate of going, you know, into the jungle in search of extraordinary experience. You know, I'm I'm all about, like, find a place that you like, where you're comfortable, and just chill there. Have fun. Enjoy it. There's no shame. I mean, look, I've been living in a van by a river in Idaho for the last five weeks. You know, there's no shame in that. You don't need to go to Brazil or Indonesia or India or Nepal or some exotic place you never heard of in order to have the experience of travel. So, you know, maybe you and that uh, fine specimen of a man there want to just jump in the back of a, you know, of a van and go travel around the country for a while. Maybe you, maybe you want to just fly down to Mexico and hang out on a beach. I don't know. But I mean, the thing about travel is I'm not into competitive travel. I'm not into, you know, spiritual materialism. I'm not into pursuit of excellence. You know, just stretch your boundaries a little bit, which you're already doing it. Give yourself credit. You raised four kids. That's an extraordinary accomplishment. And they're all leaving the house. That's even better. (laughs) Like none of them are going to live in your basement for the next 10 years. That's success good job get those kids out and then you guys have some fun maybe try try psychedelics again try a very light dose of mushrooms when you're in a beautiful place with your husband by a river in idaho for example and uh yeah yeah write to me i'll tell you where to go and uh maybe you'll like them better this time you know the fact that that they scared you when you were young doesn't necessarily mean they're going to scare you every time. So, all right. Uh, let's see. Should we do one more? I'm No, I'm tired of listening to myself. It's been an hour and a half. I'm going to end this here. I don't know why you guys like these, but as long as you keep asking for them, I'll keep doing them. Uh, so I don't know what number this is, but it's been at least five or six weeks since I've done one. I've gotten a few emails from people saying, what's up, man? Do Aroma. All right, I did it. I don't know why you like it. I'm glad you do, though. I'm going to play you out with a song called Lost in the Light by a band called Bahama, or maybe it's Bahamas. Speaking of Bahamas, as I record this, it's a full moon outside. It's uh, Tuesday, September 6th, I think, 5th. And there's a Category 5 hurricane blasting the Bahamas right now. There are massive wildfires all over the Northwest, including Eagle Creek, where I was hiking uh, less than a month ago. I hiked back Eagle Creek. It was beautiful. Swam under the waterfall there. And uh, right now the Columbia River Gorge is aflame. Uh, A lot of Oregon is on fire right now. Crazy times we're living in. Crazy, crazy times. I hope you're safe wherever you are and uh, dry and not breathing too much smoke. 
avoiding the disasters that seem to be befalling us on all sides. We have each other. And I'm going to try to finish this fucking book because I think the worse things get, the more important it is to get this book done. So I'm going to keep working on that and uh, I'll keep you posted on the progress. Hope everything's going great for you out there. Thanks for listening to this. Thanks for giving a shit. And uh, please take care of each other. This is Lost in the Light by Bahamas. I'm lost in the light. I pray for the night to take me take you to After so many words Still nothing's heard Don't know what we should do So if someone could see me now Let them see you It was my greatest thrill just stood still You let me hold your hand Till I had my fill Even counting sheep Don't help me sleep I just toss and turn Right there beside you So if someone could help me now They'd help you too Help you to see you through all the hard things we've all gotta do. Cause this life is long, and so you wouldn't be wrong. Being free. things and I take them back If we would try again Just remember when Before we were lovers I swear we were friends So if someone could see me now Let them see you Let them see you Life is long, so you wouldn't be wrong.